It's time for Horrenda's Agenda, Bill's reflections on sports and life. Uh, today's guest is a fellow Hudson County native hailing originally from Union City, New Jersey, longtime Utah Jazz assistant coach under the late Jerry Sloan for 16 seasons from 1990 to 2005 and currently a studio analyst on the Jazz Radio Network. One of the great coaching minds in our game, Gordy Chiesa, welcome to Horrendous Agenda. Thanks, Bill. Good to, good to hear from you. A- absolutely. And, Coach, uh, you reminded me that today would have been the NBA draft, but, of course, so much has changed. The pandemic, uh, the, the killing of George Floyd and others in the subsequent protests, raising the country's consciousness of social injustice. Everything has changed. Uh, what are your thoughts on the NBA's plan to resume play in Orlando next month? Well, it's going to start on July 30th, and there'll be 22 teams down there, and it's going to be a, a happening. Now, the NBA has used tremendous uh, uh, guidelines for all the players and teams to, to uh, adhere to. So it's going to be a really a control. They call it in the bubble, and they're trying to get, finish the NBA season and then also uh, for, for the playoffs. And a huge factor, you mentioned about the NBA draft that would have been today. The NBA draft uh, is going to be now on Friday, October 16th. So without finishing the season, then how do you know what teams are going to be in the lottery as far as and in what order? So that's part of the motivation of uh, – for the, for the final uh, 22 uh, teams to play eight games than the playoffs because of the draft selection order. And, Coach, this is unprecedented, of course, on so many levels, so many unknowns. How will teams congeal? How do you think coaches will approach this training camp? And, and what advice would you give coaches at this juncture? Well, they're going to uh, a training camp as far as you have to assume that the players are not in shape. And I don't mean as far as cardiovascular, I mean basketball shape. Because basketball shape means to you and I is that there's a direct uh, correlation of movement where it's stop and go, twist and turn, versus just cardiovascular of uh, running in a straight line. So they're going to really start from the fundamentals uh, right from the beginning, but also be very conscious of not taxing the player so much as far as the physical strain. Most times when players who think they're in shape, they pull their muscles, usually speaking, it's their hamstring. So you don't want to do is have an elite player get a pulled hamstring and he can't play his potential, especially if that team goes deep in the playoffs. And, Coach, would it be okay? Time doesn't permit us to go through all 22 teams, but can I ask you about a few squads? Yes, sure, of course. So, so let's start with the Lakers uh, operating without Avery Bradley. What, what type of impact do you think that will have on the Lakers? Well, without Avery Bradley, who, over the listeners, is a superior defensive player both on and off ball. He's decided because of family reasons not to participate in the uh, end of the season uh, in Orlando. So what that does now is that they've got to make a decision as far as who do they start in that position. Now, LeBron is the point forward, and Avery Bradley plays off the ball, and so does Danny Green. So what they could do is that they could start Catavius Caldwell-Pope and use him as the starter with LeBron being the hybrid as the, uh, the point guard. That's one of it. If they, if they don't like that part of it, then they, they start then Rajon Rondo, a veteran, and he'll, he'll – uh, he'll help LeBron as far as passing the ball and be a facilitator. But the risk involved right now is defensively, that Danny Green is a a rugged defensive player, and so is LeBron James, but they need more from the perimeter defense to to be able to ball contain. And staying in L.A., your thoughts on the Clippers, of course the talent in Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, really systemically throughout their roster, their terrific, terrific depth. Uh, under the tutelage of Doc Rivers and his staff. What's your take on the Clippers? That they're poised to be champions. They're right there with the Lakers in the West, and they could win the whole thing if it falls that way because they have a veteran team with an, an elite coach. You mentioned about Doc Rivers. So the starters are Patrick Beverly, an excellent defensive player and a timely shooter. Paul George, a sh- uh, 
on a short clock. He's absolutely a basket maker, and also he's, he's a, a wing defensive player that moves his feet. They added Marcus Morris, who's vastly underrated as far as in the trading deadline, and he gives them a rugged guy that's going to try to attempt, and that's the catchword, attempt to try to slow down LeBron James as far as body up and move his feet. And then Kawhi Leonard, you can, make, you can make a narrative, the former champion of the Toronto Raptors, that he is in the top five players in the NBA. And you, you, you could pick the order who they are, but he's right there as far as a great two-way player. And it's interesting with them, they're getting mileage out of this young guy, Abitza Ubats, who's really a, a, the perfect guy, a fifth man. But their calling card is their bench. They have the, bench, the, the best bench in the NBA, number six through ten, and all these guys, you can make a discussion that they, they could start. Sweet Lou Williams is absolutely, he could score 14 points in a quarter in a rainstorm in a playoff game. Then Landry Shamet, he's an excellent offensive player. Uh, Rodney Magruder, who is a defensive player. To Michael Green, who's an a all-around you know, big guy. And then Montrez Harrell, who is a terrific off-the-bench uh, power forward slash half a center sometimes that puts so much stress on the backup big guys because he can score and he's rugged. And, and coach, a team you're extremely familiar with, of course, the, the Jazz. Now, it seems like so long ago, but they started 13 and 11, went to 28 and 12, winning 15 of 16, if my math is correct, uh, 41 and 23 when, season, uh, when the season was suspended. Uh, what are your expectations for Utah? Well, Utah is a team. That's the first thing. The way they play, they play team ball. Now, unfortunately, Boyan Bondanovich, who's a, a wonderful uh, shooter, that, that average for the Jets over 20 points a game, 44.7 field goal percentage, 41.4 from threes, and 90% foul shooter, he's out for the season. With a, on a, May 18th, the Jets decided uh, to operate on his right wrist surgery, which is a shooting hand so he's out he's out until next december 1st when the 2021 season starts so with that said they're they're handicapped as far as now they've got to figure out what they're going to do as far as the starting lineup it could be royce o'neill who's off the bench performing for them he could start at for lack of a better word um stretch four or george niang and keep royce o'neill on the bench it'll be either or and then the starters are mike conley Donovan Mitchell is a major talent. Joe Ingles, then the fourth, the power forward stretch mentioned by Royce or uh, George Niang, and then Rudy Gobert. So the Jazz are a team. And so they've got to really, uh, for them to advance deep in the playoffs, they've got to have off-the-bench performance, meaning Jordan Clarkson and Emmanuel Moutier, and they've got to get some, some mileage out of uh, all their starters where they'll basically overperform. Hey, Coach, that would be Bogdanovich in that 180 territory. I'd be remiss not to, uh, not to highlight and emphasize that. That really is rarefied air, and that, that's, that is a big loss for Utah. Very much. And what happens is a lot of times when you're a space-out three-point shooter, uh, your game is negated when the help defense never leaves you. So usually in playoff basketball, the defense is so locked in to the coverages that if you're an elite shooter, you hardly get the ball in the rhythm. So what the Jazz uh, have done over the years with uh, Boyan Bondanovich, what they do every once in a while when the ball is uh, swung uh, from um, one wing to the top of the circle and he's faced that opposite corner, they slide him into the mid post and they give him the ball at about eight feet from the basket and he's rugged and he's, he's an elite foul shooter at 90%. He creates uh, baskets and fouls. So what you want to do with a three-point shooter is just don't space him out. You've got to move him around the floor, whether it's back screen, screening action, or you've got to get into a running post-up because he can, he can score the ball in different ways. And, and switching gears to the east, you touched on Toronto earlier. To me, they're such a sleeper squad, right? They almost uh, personify the mantra playing hard in the NBA is a skill with Siakam, Lowry, undrafted guys like Van Vliet, uh, Nick Nurse, who's very innovative. Uh, what are your impressions of, of the Raptors, uh, of course, after Kawhi Leonard? They've overachieved. They're 46-18 and 18 with the second seed in their world. They're going to go up to Milwaukee Bucks and hopefully, as, as they think, would be in the Eastern Conference Finals. 
And so, again, very similar to the Jazz, but with much more talent and savviness is that they, they have a, on a roster of a whole bunch of tough guys led by Kyle Lowry, Norman Powell, O.G. Ononobi, Pascal Siakam, and Marcos Sol. Those are the starters, and those guys play as a unit. And then Fred Van Fleet comes off the bench, or they could start him, and he's absolutely a knockdown shooter. And then uh, Rondo um, Hollis Jefferson, they've gotten mileage out of him as far as he's having a career year. And it's Serge Ibaka, who's an inside-outside player. So they have uh, quality depth very similar to the Clippers where their starters are good, but their bench players absolutely enhance the game. What you want to do as a bench player in the NBA, either individualist or as a unit, you want to change the tempo of the game with energy. And most times in energy, it starts on defensive chaos, stealing the ball, getting in transition, uh, dunking defensively, either shot blocking or charge taking, and then offensively making rainbow momentum threes. And that's how the bench players determine so much of a game. And, Coach, you've talked a lot about comparing and contrasting the postseason versus the regular season. And I want to dig into that. And maybe the best segue would be asking you about the Bucks. Are they built for postseason success? Yes, they are. Absolutely. They, they lost some uh, unbelievable, heartbreaking games as far as in the playoffs, and they're right, they're right there. The Bucks lost last year to the uh, Raptors four games to two, and they have a, an, uh, they have a terrific uh, all-around game as far as they have the once-in-a-lifetime player in Giannis, and they have other guys around them that are ultra-talented, meaning in Chris Middleton. So they have two all-stars in those two guys, which means that in a playoff game, no matter what happens on a short clock, both those guys can take the ball and go creatively one-on-one and make baskets or make plays. And they've, they've, they have a terrific uh, unit as far as Eric Bledsoe, Wesley Matthews, who's a three-point shooter, Chris Middleton, Giannis, and then they start Brooke Lopez, who's a uh, amplified his game as far as being a knockdown three-point shooter. So in playoff basketball, the question would be, does the other team's bigs defensively have enough court awareness and foot speed and stance to go out there and guard Brook Lopez out in perimeter? And also his uh, sidekick, me, his brother, Robin Lopez, also as the backup, has, an, has enhanced himself as far as, as far as making three-point shots. Like all teams, their bench is terrific. So now they go George Hill, Kyle Korver, Pat Connaughton, and I mentioned about uh, also Dante DiVincenzo, who was a really a good live wire guy, and Ersan Ilasovia. So they have a terrific bench. They're right there. Their coaching is good. They rely on the three-point shots, and no matter what happens, Giannis in transition, very similar to LeBron James, he's absolutely impossible to stop. It's like a locomotive in transition. And, Coach, I've heard you say that the playoffs are, quote, scoring through physicality. The playoffs uh, elite scorers have middle game. Uh, most people play the opposite during the regular season. The playoffs take away the three-point line, et cetera. So I'd like to ask you, you know, Shane Parrish runs a popular blog on mental models of folks like Charlie Munger in the business world, and he says what you see is never all there is. So when you're watching a game, what are you looking for? And, what, and if someone hands you a box score, what's the first thing you're looking at? I'm looking at turnovers. The first thing that I'm ingrained in, I want to find out uh, how many turnovers we had. Because most times, usually speaking, it's self-inflicted. I want to say it was the great pressure defense and, and the intensity of the opposition. And that might be true partly. But usually speaking, it's because, especially in playoff basketball, most players play offense too fast and defense too slow. So they make, there, there's so many miscues and errors because of the speed of the game, and, and also they, they panic, either panic pass or panic shoot. So I look at that. Then I look at the flip side of that is offensive rebounding. Because if we turn the ball over, unfortunately, a high amount of time, do we get extra possessions by offensive rebounding? Think about, Bill, in a, um, in a playoff game when the camera shot 
on either ESPN or TNT shows the bench when they start cheering for their floor mates on, on the sideline, two things usually happen. Most times it's a rainbow three by somebody or someone takes a charge. It's the most amazing phenomenon in playoff basketball where the whole bench is up on a, on a usually most times it's a corner three most times because they're right in, front of the, right in front of the benches, right. but also it takes a charge. So these are all hustle plays and extra possessions that you get as far as getting an offensive rebound. So a lot of times you get a rebound in traffic, the defense is all over you, you kick it out to the corner, and the guy makes a three, and then the bench explodes. So I look at turnovers and offensive rebounds as the, the beginning of analyzing why we're winning or why we're not winning. Excellent. And, and let's talk about your, your quote, most NBA games, a contest of runs. I've always said it's a game of creating, sustaining, and surviving runs. So that begs the question, adjustments, in-game, halftime, in-between games, are you looking at matchups, analytics, a combination of those things? What, what, what are the triggers to say, hey, someone has, besides the scoreboard, you know, that someone has successfully sustained, survived, or created a run? All of the above, but it's also instincts by the players. So, for example, if, just generally speaking, that if we see a mismatch offensively where we think that our player can go over the top or around the defensive player, then we're going to give him to the ball, not on the first side of the floor, because that's when the defense is locked in. We're going to give that ball to, the, to that player either on a sprint pick and roll or an elbow catch or a driving kick uh, situation out of the corner on the second side by design. Now, just say we think it's a mismatch and our guy misses back-to-back shots. So we, we always say in practice, if it's a mismatch, we'll give you two times in a row to what? Prove us that we're correct. After the second time, it's not a mismatch. It's a pause right now. We're going to go back to what rhythm? So a lot of times in playoff basketball, you go to the mismatch way too much and affects the rhythm of the other guys. That's why there's so many short clock situations in the NBA because they play the mismatch game, but that player, for whatever reason, whether it's good defense, lazy dribbling, off-balance shot delivery, all the above, is that that mismatch now becomes a negative to his floor mates. And so what you want to do is uh, balance a mismatch scoring versus Offensive fluidity, and on a sideline, you get a feel for it. But we teach that in practice. So a guy, a guy misses, a, misses a jump shot against a smaller guy, we'll say the mid-block, and the second time misses the second one, or he walks the ball, we're not going to anymore. We're going to, go to, we're going to pause it and go to you later on in the game. So they know it. Right, right. And, and Coach, you, your brief follow on Twitter is at GTAza, oh my, uh, and your tweets are, are – uh, tremendous in their succinctness. Of course, you're limited by characters. But I want to highlight uh, one now, maybe one later. But you said recently on Twitter, championships are won in unique places. Practice courts, locker rooms, road venues, net, net neutral sites. The players are committed to late game execution, defend with urgency, and stick together in hostile uh, environments. Uh, you made it to the NBA Finals with, with Jerry Sloan and the Jazz twice. Uh, It's so long. You're getting to the NBA Finals. It's incredible. You have to be NBA champion. You have to win 16 playoff games with absolutely incredible hostile environment, whether it's home or away. And so the, the mental toughness that players need, both individually and also collectively, and until you go through it, most players, even though they're veterans, don't understand it. Every round in the playoffs, the intensity level kicks up three decimal points. So that first round is intense. Okay, you survive it. Second round, even more. The third round, even more. And the NBA Finals. And in Bill, in games, uh, in every playoff series, in games six and seven, there's no metrics, there's no analytics. It's mano a mano. You played against the, 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 the same team or matchups for the previous five games, and there's nothing a coach can say at, at that moment, minus what, protecting the ball, value your floor mates, and that 
No matter what happens, it's end-of-game execution. So the journey as far as it has to be done collectively, but it all starts when the players know how hard it is. That's why it's so important that you value the ball uh, offensively. They just, just to throw a rocket pass or a law pass above the guy from uh, 15 feet and throw the ball into the trombone player in the first row as far as in the band it makes no sense. And that's why you have to value every possession. And the, the elite teams, they do. So the question right now in 2020, what teams have enough tenacity, star power, that can get to the NBA finals and go for the knockout punch? That's the question. Uh, Coach, this will be, uh, again, just so unique in that you won't have those hostile environments. Uh, it'll, it'll just be a different milieu that Orlando will, uh, will present. It'll be fascinating to watch. Oh, very much. So now the question is, without the fans being there, even though it's, uh, you're playing against other elite players, and when, when you're a star player yourself, you want your greatest, uh, your greatest uh, shining star to be you. But again, for Kawhi Leonard, for Giannis, for LeBron James, Anthony Davis, all the, the, all the guys, all the, the guys in the, the guys in the uh, young Jim Tatum, all the guys they, they think they're going to try make that trying to make that step into to, to being the best of the best. It starts really in a, during the first round when you've got to be focused. And that great debate, Bill, between uh, rest and rust, meaning where do you knock somebody out? right away the first four games and the other team you're going to play against the next round, those guys are in a, uh, a slugfest in seven games. Is that good or bad? The answer is that's always good because it's better to rest your body because it takes so much energy versus the rust factor where you're missing four, five, six days before you play again. I take rest any day. And, Coach, we've talked a lot about the playoffs and championships. How about Golden State, a team that enjoyed a recent level of hegemony in the league, of course? What are your expectations uh, for the Warriors next season uh, after their uh, offseason, including uh, the draft? Next year should be, a, for those guys, a banner year. They have their own. They have a superior coach in Steve Kerr, and they're mentally tough, that group. And when you get all their guys back healthy, let's not forget is that uh, – they were, in a, they were NBA Finals five straight years, which is unheard of. You know, they, 2015, 16, 17, 18, and 19. They won it in 2015, they won it in 17, and they won it in 2018. And, you know, last year they lost in the NBA Finals with, a, with a, a major injuries, four games to two to the Raptors. So, as always, they have a great system. Those guys play as a unit, and Stephen Curry and Clay Thompson those guys are shot makers and shot creators. And they all, I, I, the, really, the Warriors, I call them back screen junkies. And again, everybody's <laughs> setting a back screen randomly for some teammate to get an open shot or dribble handoff so they can come off it and make a, either a, make a basketball decision. And that's why they're good. So when those guys come off back injury, and let's not forget also, they, uh, Kavon Looney was a big part of their group. He already played this year. So besides, we always mentioned about Clay, and then Stephen came back later on in the year. But Kevon Looney was a big guy for them that really is a major contributor. He had that core muscle surgery, and he, uh, he sat out. So they're getting, when they get everybody back in the lineup, they're going to be right there again, and they'll be absolutely hungry. I like, I like when their young team with uh, – I like Eric Paschal. It's this young guy from Villanova. That it was the 41st pick of the draft last year, and he is a, a – a, a um, talent as far as being an outside player. So with Clay and with Stefan and Draymond Green, they have, they have the big three and then the other guys around them. And they're going to get a high draft pick who will be a major talent into that group. And they got mileage also, um, they got mileage also out of Marquise Chris, uh, out of um, a Cal, former Cal Berkeley player that he played well for them. So that they had another athletic guy in the front court that should do some good things for them to give them some quality depth. And how about this one? A lot of people associate Golden State and, of course, the Rockets with the proliferation of the three-point shot. So what is your reaction to cynics that say the three-point shot is ruining the game? It's not. It's enhancing the game. But it's how you use it, though. In other words, three-point shots – 
they put so much stress on the perimeter defensive players and also the, the uh, schemes as far as who's rotating out to the perimeter. So I like that. And it spaces the floor, and it gives you a more fluid game. But if you only take three-point shots, like all the time, where you just shoot threes, and the defense has technique and is motivated, and they're, they're the second jumper on perimeter and challenge that three-point shot, now that ball bounces high up the rim, and that gives you very, very – the, the, new, the new team now who gets the rebound, it gives them absolutely an advantage and a speed state of sprinting down the floor. So the, the part about three-point shooting you've, you've got to do is that you've got to take rhythm threes, and so that gives you a chance to bounce the floor or – give you a rebound is a chance to what? To chase down that loose ball into a foot race game versus what? A hip-to-hip rebounding game. So that's when it becomes a, either positive or negative as far as your, your, your lens, how you view it. I love three-point shooting with the teams I've always been involved with. We always try to do it out of rhythm. Swing, swing, swing passes. The shots missed, we're cheering for you because that was a great team shot. And, of course, because you've said this uh, frequently, the ball moves, the scoreboard moves, right? Yeah, the, the expression we say for decades is that whenever the ball moves, the scoreboard moves. Whenever the ball sticks, the scoreboard sticks. And it's so trivial saying that, and it sounds a very cliché, but it's the opposite. It's real. It's absolutely real in a game is that when you move that ball, whether it's via pass or dribble penetration or with a screening action, the chances of getting a, a, a terrific team shot for you and for your floor mates is, is uh, highly likely. And that gives, again, all the rebounds a chance to carve out space or win the foot race game. And so what you want to do is that you want to move that ball because when you do then also create harmony. I can't explain about chemistry. All I know is that you can tell a team that doesn't have chemistry and how the way they over-dribble, how the way they never, ever cut with velocity, the way they hardly ever, ever um, get loose ball plays. You can tell a team that's very harmonious as how they, that ball hops around perimeter, how everybody uh, sprints into a pick and roll or into a screening action, how they cut out of it with velocity, how they crash the boards, how they run back in transition and get back, uh, get, get back to it because the shot was missed, but it was a good shot by their team. Now they're running back in transition to get the ball back because they can't wait to get the ball back to score again or get a good shot. That's how you win at every level, whether it's high school, college, or a big, bad NBA. You win with team chemistry, also with talent. And I think it was Steve Clifford uh, with the Magic Coach who said, uh, chemistry doesn't happen by accident. And uh, I, I definitely want to get to alignment uh, between ownership, management, uh, coaching staffs, and, and the roster. But maybe I'll start with a, another recent tweet of yours on elite coaches. You said elite coaches are new wave communicators with old school values. I, I'd love for you, uh, that really struck me as being, again, uh, just and profound. If you can elaborate on that, that would be great. Old school fundamentals. To get, here we are right now, 2020, and the NBA started in high school, in high school basketball and college basketball started back over 100 years ago with, uh, with Dr. Naismith. But with that said, Things have evolved, but nothing's ever changed. To the words I'm using, so it's old school fundamentals, the fundamentals of basketball, whether it's, whether it's shooting, driving, passing, defending, rebounding, ball hopping, individually, being in your stance, individually as a shooter, with foot placement, with hand placement on the ball, the concentration, the intensity, all the fundamental, we could, we could pick a fundamental basketball and really expound upon it. That's never changed. And what has changed, though, is people. Oh, by the way, this is 2020. So you can't coach the, the exact same way I might have done in 1975 or 85 or 95, or everyone else is listening right now to the podcast, is that you've got to adjust to the times. If you don't adjust, then you'll be a dinosaur. Now, with that said, when you do adjust, adjust is that you become a new way communicator that the ability to speak to young people he or she because you've got to bridge that generational gap because usually speaking when you're really a great communicator as far as in sports you're able to communicate with all people all walks in life 
all diversity because you feel them. When you're, when you're a communicator, you feel the players that you coach. You know their background. You know how, how they think. When they leave you, where, where, they, uh, where they're going to, about their life, what it's like. And so when you're on the court with them, you've got to understand that. And so the game has never changed as far as the fundamentals, but how you approach it. And, that, and all of us as, as, uh, as coaches, that we're always trying to uh, learn more about the value of communication and how to do it. And, Coach, that really kind of gets to the heart of authenticity and why people get into coaching in the first place. Uh, I think people can sense, you know, sincerity or lack of it. And uh, that's just something it sounds like obviously you can't fake it. No, you can't. Most coaches that last for decades, they're incredible communicators and they're connectors. Coaching is connecting. You're connecting the dots. You're connecting the bigs with the smalls in a game. You're connecting all diversity as far as people. You're connecting your coaching staff. If you're a college coach, you're connecting the, uh, the fan base as far as the student body. You're connecting the administrators. If you're in the NBA, you're connecting the economics. You're connecting also with the ownership level and with the TV partners, meaning in, in the NBA, ESPN, and TNT. You're a connector. And that the way to connect is to what? To listen. Most people that are connectors and or communicators, they're incredible listeners. They listen to people intensely, and, w- and once they listen, they learn so much how that person thinks, and then they make a value judgment of what's best for the team and the unit and also what might be slightly good for the person that's talking to you or greatly good based on what he or she is saying to you. And I'd be remiss not to ask about your coaching influences as a player and then as a coach beginning your career and then really throughout your career, Coach. Like, who influenced you? Who did you, you know, emulate? And uh, obviously, ultimately, you develop your own style and personality. But I'm just curious as to, you know, just the the origins of of your coaching style and who influenced you. Well, the greatest influence in my life was uh, Dean Smith, even though I didn't know him is that I used to go to so many clinics with Dean Smith being there and the way he talked about the game. That I was, when I was a young coach, I learned so much from Dean Smith at, again, the old medalist coaching clinics. And also, uh, also just being uh, a lot of times, Dean Smith was in New York, New Jersey, recruiting people, and they would be doing clinics. And so I really didn't know him well. But just from afar and up close is that I learned a lot from him. And then, year, and then years later, also from George Raveling. George Raveling was an amazing uh, communicator to all, again, to all walks of life. And the way George, uh, how he talked to people and to his players, I learned a lot about that. Obviously, Vic Pitino and I were there together at Providence. He, was, he, he, he is a terrific coach. And I learned a lot about basketball as far as when we were together at Providence. And then years later, it was Jerry Sloan, where we worked in lockstep for 16 years. I learned more about the NBA as far as Jerry was a terrific player in the NBA All-Star. And then we, we came together on August 1st, 1989, and I stayed for 16 seasons. And I learned a lot from Jerry, especially in the beginning, as I tried to make that transition of being a, from a college coach into being wide into the pros. So it's, and also the last part of that, oh, by the way, the opponents teach you the most about what you don't know about basketball. It's very humbling. So it's who you play against. We're in the Big East. It's who you play against, whether it was Georgetown, whether it was Villanova, whether it was St. John's, later on years later in the NBA, whether it's Chicago Bulls, whether it's the L.A. Lakers, whether it's the Boston Celtics. They teach you what you don't know about yourself as a coach and also about your team. It's absolutely thrilling, also humbling. That's very interesting, Coach. That, that's, that's fascinating. And uh, how about this? I mentioned alignment earlier. Uh, we both grew up in Hudson County uh, on the Hudson River in the shadow of the New York City skyline. And yesterday we, we saw Leon Rose with Mike Breen uh, talking about the hiring of World Wide West, the coaching surf, uh, search. Uh, excuse me. What we think it takes for the, for the Knicks to turn it around. Well, again, for the Knicks to turn around, they have to stay the course. So Leon Rose, they have a person that is a is a a guy that understands the business of basketball, and he's very level headed, 
And so when he was an agent for all those years for the CAA, uh, meaning a creative arts agency, is that he did a great job as far as for his clients, but also understanding with, from the team standpoint of what the NBA teams, what they're trying to do. So he places clients at a very high level as far as where they can maximize the economic power, but also their potential. So now he's the boss now. So now what they're going to try to do is hire a coach that is at a level of discipline, but not crazed. So in the NBA, what you want to do is have somebody that the players respect, but that person has to have an edge, but he just can't be crazed. And then from a, a assistant coaching level, the assistant coaches should be the world's greatest teachers of basketball. They should be. You're at the highest level. Your payroll is going to be next year probably $115 million, this year 109 as far as the salary cap, and that they should be, again, elite communicators and teachers of basketball. So the question with, with the Knickerbockers, like all teams, is that who are the, co- quote, who are the coaching staff and can they fast-track and accelerate the development of the young guys on their team where they, their major talents, can you make them into competitive players and then, then, then after that make them into winning players? So, for example, R.J. Barrett is a young talent, left-handed southpaw, third pick in the draft. He's got talent. So now the question is, can he develop a, a dribble-drive game to finish at the rim? Can he make the, make the rhythm shot? Can he pass off the dribble? Can he play defense in his stance? So all the things you talk about, we mentioned earlier, is that R.J. Barrett would be a classic example of a guy that is a talent. Whoever they hire, they've got to, they've got to, show, they've got to accelerate his progress. So it's an interesting, fascinating part of it. I know a lot of Knicks around the country right now. The last playoff bid for the Knicks was 2013. So it's been seven years as we speak right now that those guys have made, not made the playoffs. And so there's the, the next-door neighbor, Brooklyn Nets, right now in the playoffs, they also have an opening as far as a coach. So it would be an interesting rivalry as they go back and forth. And, of course, your success with Utah, I've got to go back and revisit that. I mean, Stockton and Malone, Stockton, the all-time NBA assist leader, Malone's second-leading scorer in league history, Coach Sloan, the fourth all-time winningest coach uh, behind Nelson, Wilkins, and Pop. Uh, coach, that had to be amazing to be a part of it. And sometimes uh, we almost take it for granted how great they were and how many times you guys, you know, you lived in the playoffs. Travel agents were not calling you for trips because they knew you'd be still busy working. Uh, tell us a little bit about what that was like. It was an amazing, incredible experience. In jazz basketball, they made the playoffs for 20 straight years from 1983 to, to 2003. For 20 straight years, made the playoffs. As a reference point, as we speak right now, the San Antonio Spurs have made the playoffs now 22 years in a row. Now the question is, for the next eight games, can they, can they make it 23? So jazz did 20. The Spurs, to their credit, is 22 and maybe 23. In Utah jazz basketball, it's about sharing and caring where we shared the ball philosophically and we cared about each other as people. That's both on the court and off the court. And John Stockton and Carl were absolutely the, the major component of that. But let's not forget there's one person that hardly people ever talk about because uh, he's uh, aging as we go forward was Frank Layden. Frank Layden, in his beneath wisdom, he was the guy that was the architect of everything. He drafted John and Carl. He hired Jerry Sloan. He hired me. He hired the other assistant for a long time, Phil Johnson. He, uh, he, he drafted Mark Eaton. He drafted Thurl Bailey. So all the people that were involved in, in jazz basketball in the 80s and 90s and even 2000s, that Frank Layden was the one that put us all together. So it starts, again, with ownership and also management. They've got to be as far as um, uh, in lockstep. And in jazz basketball, we especially use all the time, is we, we agree, disagree, and then we align. So a lot of times we agree, great. Often we've got disagreed, but once we left that, the conference room, we, what? we aligned together. Because it's very healthy to have a, uh, have a debate, have a debate as far as players or what we're trying to do or who we're going to draft or free agency. So in jazz basketball, it was collaborative. It was a collaborative situation, and there was an element of, of um, high discipline where 
People tell me all the time, and the Dallas Mavericks have taken uh, this with the Jazz over the years. Rick Collins told me this many times, is that in Jazz basketball, we made the players, when you, if you walk onto the court, you have to have your shoelaces tied. And you have to have your jersey in your, in your pants. And you have to not show your shoestrings as, so, as far as your, um, your uh, short yes. strings yes. as far as uh, outwardly. Because the, the mentality was that we want to look as a team. So, for example, we're playing a game, and one of my many, many, many jobs in-game was when the opposing team would sub in a game by the scores table, and if I saw some guy that wasn't ready to perform where he's, he's tying his shoe or he's uh, putting his jersey back into uh, his pants, I'd right away alert uh, Jerry Sloan and say to him about this guy and think about calling two to the side or calling 4X play to get that guy to be the primary defensive the very first play. It's unscientific, but I can assure you that it was a high amount of times that play wasn't ready to play. Either we scored on him or we drew a foul because of what? He wasn't, he wasn't, uh, uh, he wasn't alert to perform. In jazz basketball, the flip side of it, we like to think that all the little things that are controllable, we tried to what? Help our players play the best they could. Coach, I love that punctilious nature. That, that really says, says a lot. How do you balance that, you know, in today's, I guess it just boils down to, again, being able to communicate with uh, the players of today, right? Because, you know, it, goes, it may have been easier for a player to comply with having your sneakers tied and your, your, your shirt tucked in back in the day, but now it may be, you know, a, a bit tougher to get that message across. Yeah, it is, very much. But it all starts in practice and also your first meeting and by your leaders. So you like to think if you're a playoff team, the reason why you're there because you have talent and that your main guys have an element of discipline about their personal life, but also their, uh, their basketball as far as on the floor. You can't perform at this level if you really have a, a crazy lifestyle. Despite your high level of talent, eventually your lifestyle or your lack of focus or all the above, et cetera, will unfortunately uh, become a downward spiral. So the, the, the teams that usually win – Go deep in the playoffs. They have a bunch of people that that really are have self-discipline, and then add to that having unit discipline with your team, and that is all part of it. So, example: every coach in history of mankind has said to their team in practice, "We want you to swing the ball, swing the ball, swing the ball." Okay, so far so good. Oh, by the way, when the game comes, the team never swings the ball. That's when that's your coaching. Then is that you've got to get people. To how you practice as far as discipline and your core values. And it starts with every little thing that you do as far as that. One more thing about jazz basketball, just for example, we would never leave the court until the last player when the game is over. So the coaching staff would never leave the court, even if the guy was uh, doing a, a, a quick a two-minute with the uh, TV cameras, we stand the court because we never want our guy to be on the court, especially a road game, with no one around him. Yeah, yes, there's security. I get that. But security is different than having your coaches around you. So, for example, when Carl Malone or John Stockton or Jeff Hornacek did after a game that they played well interview, we'd stand the court all for three coaches until that play was finished, that we all walk together. Walk, walk, we all walk off together. Little thing, big thing. Yes, yes. And, and how about this? The data today, the analytics the video, how do coaches effectively distill information so that the players are incorporating on the floor what you need them to do for them to be successful and, the and for the team to be successful? And, and, and coach, from that, from that standpoint, uh, to avoid swing the ball, swing the ball, you're maybe you're doing it in practice, as you alluded to, but it's not happening in the, in the game. Is that another challenge? Uh, for coaches today, because I'm always that always amazes me is how they have to just distill down because there's so much information out there today. Very much less is better, so that we as the adults in the room, the players most times are semi-adults. Just generally speaking, is that we have to think of what's the what's the um, basketball intelligence of the people you're talking to. Some are really high, some of them are lesser. That's okay. Whatever it is, it's fine because it's on us as the coaches and the people in management that we have to talk. How we have to talk as far as I call it in sound bites. 
as far as you can't get them so much where they slow down their their mind, and even worse than that, they slow down their feet. Players rebel internally if you slow down their feet. In other words, they think they're, these are the athletic guys, and they do mean well, suddenly by the coaching, over-talking, and over-analyzing, it confuses them, and it slows down their feet, and they internally resent it. So that's why they call it, that's why they shoot angry in a game. So when you see somebody that's shooting angry in a game, even though he's a good person, you're, he's saying to you in, in, in his heart of hearts is that you're, slow, you're, you're affecting my game because I'm thinking too much. Right, right. And, and sometimes, like, sometimes you can summarize defense in eight words. Ball you man, hit fine and go get it, right when a shot goes up. It's like LaBalbo to Izzo. And I think that there's a tendency, I call it, you know, the obfuscation. You're taking the simple and making it complex. And, you know, I'm fascinated by organizations that are successful and then those that are you know, rebuilding, but those that perennially struggle, because at the end of the day, sometimes I just feel like, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day, but it got built and, and basketball ain't that easy, but it ain't that hard. Sometimes I think we're our own worst enemies, coach, just over complicating things. Very much. Absolutely. It's a very simply one, all you men, can you guard the ball? By, by the way, are you in a defensive stance? You're in a stance. Oh, I have slow feet. Okay, then play, then play a cushion game where you're up, you're up in the coverage as far as on ball, but as a cushion, and you're going to be a second jumper. Next one, are you a help defender? Am I, uh, are my knees bent? Where my knees are bent, and do I have a swiveling head? So we call that in jazz basketball. Who today is Mr. Swivelhead? I want to find out in practice today who's the best guy on our team as far as being Mr. Swivelhead. And you'd be amazed, but just seeing that, that, uh, that fun statement, Mr. Swivelhead, how players suddenly what, are turning their head and taking cutters and seeing the ball, seeing the man, and seeing the help. And what you want to do, again, the ability to communicate. And offensively, mentioned earlier, and it never changes as far as move the ball, pass the ball, cut with velocity, um, rebound the ball, and do it again consistently. And so by keeping it simple, Keeping it very, very elementary, yet athletically, will enhance a player's game, both individually and also as a group collectively. Terrific. And, Coach, can I ask you about the last dance? You know, going against the Bulls in the finals in 97 and 98, were you able to, to check out the ESPN documentary on Michael Jordan and the Bulls? And I'm curious for your rea- reaction to it. Oh, I enjoyed it tremendously. I watched uh, every episode, and I knew most of it. However, not all of it. So I was, uh, was uh, I was really interested as far as uh, how the Bulls won. They were somewhat dysfunctional, but Michael Jordan was not, and neither was Scottie Pippen. And so, even though behind the scenes it depicted that how there was always uh, um, comments, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, as far as uh, behind club behind closed doors. But on the court, they're absolutely united. And Michael Jordan was the, was the, the number one sole reason of why that group went. And that would, would, and Jordan, no matter what happened, he could do amazing things on both sides of the ball. And he mastered, he taught me some great lessons as far as uh, trying to defend him was that uh, he taught me a great lesson where if you try to double team with, with a, the second defender as a big, he would attack the, the, the defender right away, the big guy in the coverage. So he, he gates it. So with Michael Jordan slash the late great Kobe Bryant and a half of LeBron James and definitely Giannis, what you want to try to do is corral the double team as far as the lead scorer by, by trapping them on a running trap because they're not going to cooperate. They're not going to be passive. They're going to take off. You have to trap those guys with two smaller guys to try to contain the ball, which means now you've got to uh, teach the big guy opposite the floor to play closeout defense. So when I watched those, uh, those uh, uh, jazz uh, bulls, uh, the last dance situations, those games, that's what Michael Jordan taught me. And the last part about that, in the iconic game uh, six in Flag Day on June 14, 1998, when Michael Jordan, the Jets ran the play, the, the Jets called fist one, where Jeff Hornacek's on the ball side block, John Stockton angle dribbles from the middle to the wing area as far as position himself to make the pass. Jeff screens at the basket line for call. 
uh, Michael Jordan guarding Jeff and Dennis Robbins bodying up on call. Jeff sets a great screen on Rodman. Rodman is, uh, takes the screen upright. Call starts coming off it. He makes the catch, and Jordan, who never did this ever, he, he came on the baseline side to strip call on it versus coming on the right. top side and call with a sort. And that's the brilliant Michael Jordan-type people. LeBron also in that group, too, where they, they do so many uh, incredible things instinctively, and they do it at the perfect time for them. And when Jordan came down the floor against the Jazz in transition, that I knew that only bad things were happening. I was um, screaming at Jeff Hornacek in a positive way. When I say scream in a positive way, green, 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 which means the nearest guy go double-team Michael Jordan. Jeff was guarding Ron Harper. Uh, that situation and transition, I didn't hear it. Michael came down and made the, the dagger jump shot. The last part of that was this. People forget, unfortunately, that Stockton had a great look in game six on a three-point shot that would have won it. It danced in, it danced out. And sometimes, like Pat Riley says, Coach, right, it's a make-or-miss league. Very much. And you realize that in game six, that Michael Jordan missed 20 shots in that game. Yes, he scored 45 points, including the once-in-a-lifetime basket. Michael shot 15 for 35 in that game. And the last part about that was the value of Tony Kukoc. You know, Dennis Rodman is absolutely great, Hall of Famer. Scottie Pippen, that guy is great. Michael Jordan, the greatest. Right. And, and add to that, to Ron Harper, solid. Luke Longley, solid. But Tony Kukoc, which created so many, quote, mismatch problems. So you double-team Michael Jordan, and suddenly the ball comes through Tony Kukoc on a live catch. He dribble drives to the basket against a small defender. He shoots over the small defender. So the guy did have position, but the counterpunch was uh, the length of Tony Kukoc. And in that series, Kukoc was the second-leading scorer for the Bulls behind Michael. Excellent. That's excellent analysis. And, Coach, i, I got to tell you, uh, we have covered a lot. And, you know, Fran Fischilla at the PPG Pro Scout School quoted you, and he said uh, that you had said the basketball world is two blocks long. You know everybody on your block. And while you don't know everyone on the other block, somebody on your block knows somebody on the other block that you don't know. So I just kind of feel like we, we've covered a lot and been able to to, to make those connections and harness uh, some great information from you. And I really, really sincerely appreciate it. Oh, thanks very much for the opportunity. Yes, the whole sports world is two blocks long. We, we know everybody on our block and also probably everyone on the next block. And whether you're in Serbia, whether you're in, Yugos whether you're in Italy, whether you're in uh, Hong Kong right now, whether you're in the North Bergen, New Jersey, whether you're right now in a Burbank, California, we all know each other, and that's the beauty of sports and in basketball, that we're all connected, and we all really are basically one, extent, one extended family. Absolutely. And, Coach, of course, uh, fans can follow you on Twitter, at GTAza, oh, my, uh, for your great tweets. And, of course, I've got to recording uh, the Jazz pre- and post-game radio coverage. Uh, you do such a terrific job there, and I record it because – uh, frequently, I want to go back and, and listen again, and, I, and I'm afraid sometimes uh, – I, I know you've said the obvious is never obvious to the oblivious, and I'm trying to stay away from being oblivious, but I hit record just so that I can go back in case uh, I have a uh, – in case I take a playoff, which I, I strive not to do. No, thanks. No, it's absolutely fine. No, thank you. Absolutely, Coach. My, my, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Stay hey, well. Coach. You can follow Bill on Twitter at Bill Horrenda.